Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a good show for you today. We're going a little basketball-heavy this week because the NBA draft is coming up on Thursday night. I'm going to be joined by Fansides College Sports Editor Patrick Schmidt to preview the NBA draft, break down some of the top prospects, what some of the locals are going to do. The Knicks are sitting at number three entering this draft. The Nets down number 27 after trading a pick away to clear Allen Crabb's contract for a run at big free agents. We'll break all that down with Patrick in just a bit. I also got to recap the Stanley Cup Finals with our hockey guy Pete Consadori after the St. Louis Blues play Gloria, win the Cup for the first time in franchise history. We'll break down all the storylines there, how the Blues did it, how they toppled the Boston Bruins, some of the big headlines for the hockey fans to watch hang of the offseason as well. That's coming up later in the show. Be sure you're locked in for this week's two-minute drill where we're going to have the funeral of the 2019 New York Mets. Their season came to an end on Thursday night against the St. Louis Cardinals. We'll break down why and break down what went wrong, how ridiculous that whole situation was, why the year is done. That's going to be the end of the show. But we'll get everything rolling with this week's opening tip where we recap the NBA Finals and our new champions, the Toronto Raptors, right after this. Here comes the double team. trying to split. Almost traveled in. Fleet throws it up. All right, we are back on the Just and the Suffering podcast. This week's opening tip that call is heard from ABC's Mike Breen, Fred Van Vliet hitting a big three for the Toronto Raptors in the NBA Finals, and the Raptors are your new NBA champions. Congratulations to the Raptors, win their first NBA title, first ever championship for a Canadian NBA team, and the man himself, the myth, the legend, Kawhi Leonard, your NBA Finals MVP, and as he's done throughout the entire playoffs, puts the Toronto Raptors on his back once again. Over the course of this series, Kawhi averages 28.5 points per game, shoots 43% from the floor. And he made his impact felt on both the offensive and the defensive end. Kawhi was the man. But as Martina Puccio said when we previewed the finals a couple weeks back, the Raptors need to get contributions from everyone to beat the Warriors. And that is exactly what happened. Fred Van Vliet, we just heard in that clip at the top of the show, how many big threes this guy hit, especially in game six in the clincher. He was just nailing dagger after dagger after dagger down the stretch. Kyle Lowry steps up big. Pascal Siakam has the huge effort in game one. Marcus again, not as involved as he was in his prime, but he had his moments where he stepped up. Danny Green hit some big shots. The list goes on and on and on. And I love this gamble that Masai Jury, the Raptors uh, GM, took this year. The Raptors had a very, very good basketball team. Last year, they had the NBA Coach of the Year, Dwayne Casey. They won 60 games, but they could not get past LeBron. They lost in the Eastern Conference semifinals. They let Dwayne Casey go, and then Ajiri decides, you know what? I'm going to take a shot here. I'm going to put all my chips in the middle of the table. Takes DeMar DeRozan, a very good player, 
trades him to San Antonio to get the one year of Kawhi Leonard. And he had no guarantee that Kawhi was going to stay. He still doesn't. Even if they won this title, which they did, Kawhi could say, you know what? Peace, guys. I'm out to LA. I want to go back to the Clippers and come back home. So, you know what? They did win. And this makes this deal worth it entirely. They got a championship out of the one year Kawhi Leonard was there. So, even if tomorrow he tweets, he leaks out something because he's going to go to the Clippers. Even as the case, Toronto fans will still build a statue because they won him. Because he won them their first ever NBA championship. Now, this kind of thing, it makes me wonder if we're going to start seeing more teams do this kind of thing. If we're going to see more teams, when they see a disgruntled star who has a year left on his deal, say, you know what? I'm a piece away. I'm going to trade for that guy and to my team and go for it all next year. This would have been a spot that Anthony Davis would have been in with if he went to the Boston Celtics. Because the Celtics could have looked at this and said, you know what? Hey, we have a good core here. We need to try and win while the East is still unstable, especially if Kawhi goes out west. We could have traded for Anthony Davis, could have put it, convinced him to help bring Kyrie Irving back, and then had a team that could win the East and get to the finals and win again, especially with the Warriors being unstable right now. The Celtics did not want to part with Jason Tatum. That cost them him. He goes to the Lakers. We'll get to that in a little bit, but we'll stay with the final teams for a second. We'll go to the Warriors now. It makes you wonder, after watching this series, is this the end of the Golden State Dynasty? The Raptors throughout this series were the best team. They outplayed the Warriors a lot. They won three games in Oracle Arena, which nobody has done in any playoff series. And the Warriors had to fight tooth and nail to win the two games they did. Granted, I give you, Golden State was destroyed by injuries in this, in this series. Kevon Looney played hurt the whole finals. Klay Thompson hurts his hamstring game three, has to sit game four, blows out his ACL at the end of the series. Kevin Durant played for 10 minutes, missed the first four games, played 10 minutes in game five, blows out his Achilles. He's done. Now, is an excuse for the Warriors? Absolutely not. Last year, even, they were a Chris Paul healthy hamstring away from being knocked out in the conference finals. So no one has sympathy for the Warriors. Do they win the series if everybody's healthy? If Kevin Durant is there the whole series? If Klay Thompson doesn't tweak his hamstring? If Kevon Looney doesn't hurt himself? Maybe. But the Raptors were just a very good matchup for the Warriors. They were well-equipped to deal with them. They had enough guys who could contribute were not intimidated by the moment. That is why the Raptors won this series. As far as the Warriors are concerned in the future, a lot of questions about what's going to happen here. I mean, number one, DeMarcus Cousins, free agent, he's leaving. I'm sure he's not coming back. Clay Thompson, going to be a free agent, tears ACL. He's still likely to re-sign, but even if he does, he's going to miss a very large portion of next season. Then you have Durant. And Durant definitely came back too soon, as we've seen here. Comes he blows out the Achilles tendon. It's a tough break for Durant. And he deserves a ton of credit, though, because he was in a place where he could just sit out. No one would have blamed him if he couldn't come back. He could have gotten his massive payday. But he said, you know what? Clay's playing hurt. Looney's playing hurt. I'm going to go out and try to help my team win. He 
It cost him a lot, and it's going to help his legacy because it's going to show that he's a team guy, that he is not in this just for himself. He wanted to help his team win, and he put a lot of money on the line to do that. And as far as he's concerned, though, he has some options about how he's going to play this. Option number one, he could opt into his deal with Golden State because this is not a straight free agent situation like Clay Thompson is. Durant signed a one-and-one deal where he basically has a $31.5 million player option he can pick up and be there next year, basically collect $32 million to rehab, and then go back at the market again. The problem with that strategy, which is why I don't think he's going to do it, is that it's going to be so long since he's played basketball that teams might wonder, what am I getting when I get Kevin Durant back? Yes, he was very good up until that injury, but there's going to be very little tape on him showing what he can do. So he runs the risk that his options become more limited if he waits it out. So option B, what I think he's going to do, is he's going to go to free agency, he's going to take his chances there, and somebody will pay him a max contract. The Warriors still want to give him the Supermax. They're willing to give him the five-year, $240 million contract to ensure he stays out in Golden State. The Knicks still want him. They're willing to do whatever they can to get him. The Nets still want him. You know both LA teams will be interested in him. The Lakers may not as much now that they got Anthony Davis, but I could see a scenario where they think about it. The Clippers definitely have designed to try to pair him with Kawhi Leonard, so that's another option for him. But Kevin Durant will have no shortage of suitors out there. And it's a very risky scenario for whoever ends up with this guy. Because a basketball player coming off an Achilles injury is a massive risk. They are no joke, these injuries. Look at the Wesley Matthews. Matthews was an elite ascending guard with the Trailblazers. Blows out his Achilles. He's come back. He's been a productive player. But he's not been the same guy he was before he got hurt. Bookie Cousins came back from one. And it's different for a big man because it's not as much lift and leg requirements and explosiveness as you do from the guard position, but he was not the same guy. The best case scenario if you're the team investing in Durant is that he's Dominique Wilkins. That Wilkins blows out his Achilles, comes back, he's basically the same guy. And they have a very similar build, both Durant and Dominique Wilkins. Durant, he's probably not going to be the same guy, but... If he is 85% of what he was before the injury, that's still a top 10, top 15 player in the league. And that's a guy you can build around. Now, is that worth gambling $140 million over four years for a guy to be 32 when he takes the court again? If I'm a Nick fan, I would, and I'm one of them, I'm terrified that they give him that contract and he's not the same guy. We've seen them take on injury risks in the past. Amari Stoudemire, remember that, Nick fans? Took $100 million to come here and basically was not the same after his first year. Antonio McDice trade speaks for itself. The Knicks are probably going to try this anyway. They can justify it saying, look, here's what we're going to do. We will keep the third pick. We'll take R.J. Barrett. We'll sign Durant for a redshirt year. Let him... Let him rehab, get healthy. We'll develop the young guys. Put Barrett in there with Kevin Knox, Mitchell Robinson, Dennis Smith Jr. If we're bad, we get another lottery pick, get another asset that we can use to help build the team around Durant. And it's funny how far things have fallen for the Knicks. Just a couple months ago, the dream scenario was 
Zion Williamson, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. Now, Kyrie sounds like he's going to Brooklyn. Durant going to miss a year, probably, rehabbing this eight, this Achilles injury. And they did not get the top pick. Zion Williamson is going to New Orleans to replace Anthony Davis. It's crazy how much things can change in the NBA. And there will be a lot of shifting landscapes over the next couple of weeks, which we will keep track of here on the podcast. But up next, we will shift our focus to the upcoming draft with Patrick Schmidt from Fansided right after this. Simplicity of their offense, Brad. That's what I think. It's so easy to play because the talent's extraordinary with Duke. Nice Boy, the janitor better stay ready with extra rim. I remember you in your heyday. Could you bring it with this vengeance? Leave the chandeliers, big fella. All right, we are back with this week's big NBA draft preview. You just heard CBS Sports' Bill Raftery and Jim Nance breaking down a big dunk that Zion Williamson put on against poor North Dakota State in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Williamson, the presumed number one pick on Thursday's NBA draft. And joining me to preview the draft is somebody I've had on twice before. It's fan size college sports editor, Patrick Schmidt. Patrick, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Not a problem. Let's start with the, before we get into diving into this draft a little bit, let's go back to the lottery for a minute. How surprised you the results of all of that with New Orleans getting the top pick? A lot of teams in the middle sort of jumping up because that was a huge shakeup in what we expected getting into that. Yeah, huge shakeup. Everybody was penciling in the Knicks to get that top pick. And, you know, the Knicks fans were getting their Zion tattoos and pre-ordering their Zion jerseys. And, you know, uh, <laughs> they're all they're getting a little too ahead of themselves, obviously. Um, but, yeah, uh, the Knicks uh, dropping the third. Uh, that was a you know a big surprise uh, to see the Pelicans get that top spot. Hey, you know we love uh, conspiracy theories around the draft lottery. Um, you know let's uh, let's stoke those flames. Um, you know Pelicans obviously they traded Anthony Davis a couple days ago to the Lakers. Uh, the Lakers getting that fourth pick and it all kind of felt um, you know like uh, there were some puppet strings being pulled. You know the Pelicans are going to lose Anthony Davis, but let's give them Zion Williamson and get this huge big marketable star to build around. And then the Lakers, they get the fourth pick. They move up. They're, you know, very lucky. So they now have that ammunition to make the Davis deal happen. And, of course, a couple of days ago we saw that happen. But to see the Suns drop, to see um, the Knicks drop, uh, even the Bulls and the Hawks, uh, some teams that were in that 3-4-5 that range, uh, they all fell a couple of spots. So to see Memphis and New Orleans move up to those top two spots, huge, huge, huge uh, win for them. And, uh you know, some big market teams are uh, you know, going to be crossing their fingers. They can help some, uh, uh, find some diamonds in the rough here in the, uh, the middle to uh, late portions of the lottery. Yeah, let's start at the top with the Pelicans. Who, we'll get to the four in a second, but they got incredibly lucky there. They get the top pick. They replaced Anthony Davis with Zion Williamson. So what do Pelican fans have to look forward to with Zion? Well, I mean, if they hadn't seen him at Duke for his one year or uh, didn't follow him when he was and, you know, slam dunking everything and anything. Uh, Zion's going to be a star. He's going to be an all-star for a long time. Uh, different player than Anthony Davis. Obviously, they play different positions, but Zion is a star. Uh, he's going to be, uh, you know, all over commercials, all over uh, the NBA uh, landscape. Um, you know, he's going to play the three, but he can, you know, do some things that a four can do. Uh, the guy's going to be awesome. Uh, far and away the best player in the draft. Uh, he's going to score, he's going to rebound, he's going to block shots, he's going to get steals, he's going to play help defense. Uh, the guy can really do it all. 
Uh, I've said he's the, the best college player we've seen since Anthony Davis and maybe the most hyped prospect to enter the league since LeBron. So uh, as you mentioned alongside those two names, uh, that's the type of uh, hype and expectations surrounding him. So from a Pelicans fan, uh, it stings to lose Anthony Davis, but knowing Zion Williamson's coming a couple days behind, and I'm pretty excited. Yeah, we're very excited too because – John Rusty, I remember described him on, on WFN Radio here in New York recently, as Anthony Mason on steroids. So that's a fun player to have on your basketball team. Yeah, that's a great comparison. You know, uh, you know it, it seems like for the last year in college uh, basketball, everybody's trying to come up with a comp for Zion. And, you know, it's tough to come up with one because we've really never seen a player like this before. We've seen, uh, you know, muscular guys, you know, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, range, you know, like an Anthony Mason or a Danny Fortson or, you know, dozens of other guys. But, you know, they didn't really have the above-the-rim type of game that Zion has. And, you know, his three-point shot is under development, and it's going to get better two, three, four, five years down the road. Uh, but this guy can do it all, man. And it's going to be uh, awfully exciting to see. Much, much, much better uh, than, like, you know, you know, what may come to mind when you think of Anthony Mason. But Anthony Mason, steroids, I kind of like that. That's a fun comp. Yeah, it is a fun comp. And they also have the four-pick now, thanks to that trade from the Lakers. So, like, do you think that they're going to keep that pick? Do you think they're going to end up shopping and try and get more assets? Yeah, that was like the big question I had after the, the trade went down, you know. Do they look to move that for uh, a veteran to play alongside? A lot of these you know, young guys, it's going to be Zion and basically a lot of the, the, the Lakers rebuilding guys except, you know, Kuzma. So uh, a lot of youth on that roster. wonder if maybe they uh, try and swing that pick for, uh, you know, I don't know which veteran would be on the market, but um, you know, a veteran asset, you know, a little bit more of a known commodity because I'm sure as we'll talk about later on, like this is a, this is a three-man draft. And, you know, owning that fourth pick is still valuable, but uh, there's no consensus slam dunk pick that you're going to take at number four. So uh, I'm certainly thinking they're going to entertain some trade calls, but if they do keep that pick, um, you know, I would imagine they're going to find somebody that can, you know, hit, a, hit an open shot because Zion's going to command a lot of attention. Drew Holiday's there. Um, you know, Lonzo Ball will be their primary ball carrier. And, you know, Brandon Ingram, a lot of expectations for him. So uh, they could really go any position. Um, you know, they're, they're in a good spot here. They have a lot of ammunition here to work with. So I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they use that pick or if they use that pick to, to try and acquire a veteran. Yeah, they'll have a lot of fun. They'll get a lot of phone calls for sure. David Griffin will be a popular man. Let's go to the Grizzlies now. They have the second pick. They're expected to take Murray State point guard John Moran to basically be these heir apparent to Mike Conley at the point. So how do you think Morant's game is going to translate to the next level? Uh, he's going to be a great player. Uh, you know, a little bit of a uh, unheralded recruit and, you know, former AAU teammate of Zion Williamson, but, uh, you know, goes to Murray State, so maybe a little bit under the radar, uh, you know, because he wasn't at Duke or Kentucky or Carolina or whatever. But uh, great, great, great player. And, you know, if the first time you saw him was in the NCAA tournament, the guy had a, a great first impression with a triple-double in the opening round game against Marquette. So, uh, the guy, you know, he can dribble, he can shoot, he can get to the rack, he can get fouled, he can shoot. Uh, he can do a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, with a lot of these incoming point guards, they're all just, you know, a little bit too small. You just worry about them, you know, putting on about 10 to 15 pounds of muscle and get a little bit stronger uh, to withstand not only, you know, an 82-game schedule, but, you know, going against grown-ass men. So uh, that's really the only concern I have, John Moran, but, you know, he can score with the best of them, led the nation in assists, so he's going to be a, a distributor, but... Um, a great guy to build around, uh, especially, you know, with Mike Conley getting up there in age. Um, so maybe they try and move him again. But, 
great piece to build around there and, you know, great for the Grizzlies to get up to that two spot to you know, get the next franchise player. Yeah, let's talk about now about the last man of the three-man class here, R.J. Barrett from Duke. The Knicks are sitting there at three, expected to take him. So I feel like the Knicks fans don't – I feel like they've all got so hyped on Zion, and they don't realize that Barrett can be really good at, this, at the next level. I think that going into the going into the college season, he was the projected number one pick in this draft before Zion became Zion. So, like, do you think he'll be a good fit in New York? Yeah, I think he'll be a great fit in New York, and I understand Knicks fans – uh, disappointment or, or feeling underwhelmed because you, know, you hype yourself up, you expect to get Zion, and then you get R.J. Barrett. It's like, uh, it's nice and all, but you know, it's like getting a really great hamburger when you're expecting, like, you know, filet mignon or something like that. But, yeah, R.J., he can score. Uh, he can handle the ball a little bit. Um, you know, Zion and R.J., they played really well together. I don't know if it was necessarily the, the ideal pairing for two people, but, yeah, R.J. Barrett was the number one recruit coming into college basketball last year, and Projectively, the top pick, just like you said, and you know Zion just took his game to a, another stratosphere. Uh, so it kind of felt like Barrett was maybe not as good, but he was great. I mean, All American as a freshman. I mean, that that doesn't happen very often. So, you know, he's a guy that's going to score twenty plus points per game. He's going to get a lot of shots and a lot of opportunities as a rookie. Um, you know, the Knicks, depending on what they do in free agency. Um, you know, what stars they're able to uh, attract to the Big Apple, we'll see. But, um, you know, RJ Barrett's going to be a really good player for a really long time, and uh, he's going to fit in well in the Big Apple for the Knicks. Yeah, some people don't realize that, like, RJ Barrett's a very good NBA player because, like, his skill set, I feel like, didn't really mesh with Zion's well at Duke. He often play a secondary role. I feel like he's cut out to be a lead guy on an NBA team. Yeah, absolutely. This is a guy that, uh, you know, he's going to take the, the shot in the last second. Um, he's going to be the guy that, you know, is defended by the best teams, uh, by the opponent's best defender. So uh, he's going to be the guy for them, you know. I mean, we'll see. Are they going to sign Durant? Are they going to sign Kyrie? Are they going to go after some of these elite free agents? But uh, whether they do or they don't, RJ Barrett's going to be a great player for the Knicks. Yeah, he will be a great player for the Knicks at three. And after that, this is where the draft gets really interesting because – there's a lot of guys in that next tier, guys who are good, but they have flaws and not don't have as much upside as the top three guys do. So, like, who do you like the best after that top three? Who's your next best player that you would love to take if you were an NBA team? I mean, this is, this is tough because, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head that there's a lot of good players, but, you know, there's not that great player that, you know, everybody's penciling in as a consensus fourth pick. Uh, all these players have wars, but... I look at Darius Garland, really explosive point guard, but, you know, basically only played for like 10 minutes in college. Uh, DeAndre Hunter is a really, really good player, really versatile national champion at Virginia. Great player there. He can do a lot of different things there, but may not be great at any one of them. Kobe White, really electric, super fast point guard, can score. Um, you know, Jared Calder, a really solid player, obviously, at Texas Tech, led his team to the title game, but, you know, dropped off as a three-point shooter, maybe he isn't the elite athlete of some of these other players. And then Cam Reddish, he was the, you know, the third part of this Duke trio with Zion and R.J. Barrett and just didn't really fit in well there at Duke and kind of had a disappointing season there. So, you know, all those guys are kind of in the mix. If I had to pick one of those guys, I'd probably go with DeAndre Hunter because uh, he can, you know, play and defend anywhere from the two, three, and four. Um, you know, had a really great national championship game, really great tournament, well coached. So he might be my number four uh, guy in what is definitely a three-man draft. 
Yeah, I like Hunter because Hunter, I feel like, is a very safe player for, like, a team that's looking for, like, a plug-and-play guy. I feel like he's ready to do that right now. But I think the guy who will get the most attention, especially if New Orleans ends up trading this pick, is Cam Reddish because I think that he has the size, the frame to be a very good pro. But, like, obviously he like, fared the worst of the big three at Duke because his game did not mesh at all with Zion and Barrett, where the other two could kind of work together. So, you... Yeah, completely. Of those players we just, or I just rattled off, I think Reddish... Uh, definitely is the most upside. Um, nobody might be the might be the biggest risk, but um, um, yeah, if I'm betting on upside, I'm taking uh, Cam Reddish. And you know, we've seen a year and year out. Uh, you know, the NBA draft is all about potential and what you can do down the road. So uh, when it's all said and done, Reddish might be that guy that does go for it, either to New Orleans or whoever they trade that pick to. Yeah, I think the team I'm watching here, I think Atlanta would be a great fit for him because they have eight and ten. They can go up there four, get that pick, get him, and then. So I let him develop alongside Trey Young and all the other young guys they have down there because I feel like there'll be a lot less pressure on him to be the guy that would be somewhere else. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You get Trey Young, um, you know, you get Trey Young some more help, some more shooters, uh, guys that can help space the floor. Um, you know, I think that would be great. And like you said, they got the, the extra draft ammunition from uh, from the Doncic trade last year. So, you know, maybe uh, if we put our GM hats on. Maybe that could be one that uh, eventually comes to fruition there. Yeah, that'd be interesting too. Let's go to the bottom of the draft. I'm a New York podcast. So I want to hit the Nets. They're down at number 27. They had 19. They traded with Alan Craft's contract to create some cap room. So, who are some guys that they could target down at 27? Yeah, you know, this is tough to, you know, it's easy to project the top two or three picks. Uh, but, yeah, you start looking at 27 or whatever. Uh, it can be a little bit difficult. But uh, a couple of names, you know, if they, you know, depending on what they do in free agency, if they do sign Kyrie and whatnot, they could. Um, you know, they might be looking to draft and stash, but, you know, obviously with the draft coming up uh, before free agency, makes that decision a little bit more complicated and whatnot. But uh, a guy out of Serbia, 19 years old, power forward, 6'11", Lucas Dominic. I think he could be a guy that, uh, you know, they stash for a while and they bring in, you know, I mean, 6'11", serve. I mean, that's, that's pretty uh, coachable. Uh, Princeton, power forward, Darius Bagley could be a guy, maybe Chumel Kiki from Auburn. Uh, you know, he was having a really great tournament. Auburn got to the Final Four, but uh, he suffered that, that lower leg injury. So he's a guy that's going to slide down lower than um, you know where he would have been picked normally. Another international prospect that you know is getting a lot of steam and a lot of attention lately. Nick Claxton, six eleven center out of Georgia. So um, that's some, you know it's, it's all just you know potential and projection, but. Um, you know, I can see them going any position, really, and just however they have their board shaping out. But uh, the names I've kind of rattled off, they're, they're more big uh, than whatnot. Because, um, you know, I'm kind of expecting them to get Kyrie Irving in free agency. So I don't have them taking a, a point guard or a, a ball-dominant, uh, you know, perimeter player. So, uh, you know, somebody that could uh, lock down the block. And, you know, maybe even a John Tate Porter, you know, from Missouri, another 6'11 guy. So, I don't know what name it's going to be, but I'm uh, I'm expecting it to be uh, a big uh, one way or the other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, obviously, one last thing. is so one of the fun parts of the NBA draft is obviously you know the top of the draft, you know who it is. But going down at the bottom there, some of these teams find these gems later in the draft, like your Kyle Kuzma, who they Nets had that pick. They traded to the Lakers to get D'Angelo Russell. And then you got guys like Karis LeVert, Pascal Siakam, the 27th pick. Some second rounders like Joe Harris and famously Draymond Green. So, like, do you have a, your eye on one guy who's even projected too high you think could have a good pro career? Oh, man. I'll give you two names. One, Grant Williams from Tennessee, two-time SEC Player of the Year. 
Uh, but he's like, you know, he's a six, seven power forward ish type. You know, he's, uh, he does have a great, a great quick first step. I don't know if he's ever going to be like a, a starting, uh, you know, caliber player week in and week out or game in and game out. But I think he's a guy that's going to, you know, really help the team, really help the second unit, the bench unit. Uh, he can do a lot of different things and, you know, he made, he made his teammates better. He really elevated that Tennessee team to, but they were the number one team in the nation for like three months in a row. So um, he's one guy. Another guy that I, I really love is Carson Edwards, uh, point guard out of Purdue. Had a, a great tournament, uh, a couple of great, uh, you know, scoring outbursts where you know, it was looking like he was going to put up 40 points a game. Uh, can really shoot the three. Um, but for whatever reason, NBA teams just aren't, aren't sold on him as a, a lottery pick. I don't know why. Um, maybe it's because he's not an elite athlete, maybe he's a little bit undersized at six foot, two hundred pounds. But he's a guy that just plays. He's a all, you know, he's a, a top five competitor uh, in this draft. So I really like him. Been a big fan of his at Purdue for the last few years. So he's a guy that you know I'm banking on. He's definitely going to make a team uh, and really help a, a second uh, a second unit for for wherever he lands. So um, he's a guy that I'm going to be uh, really interested to see where he lands in the draft. Yeah, I love those kind of guys. The guys who are productive in college but don't necessarily have the right skill fit, like like in terms of like size and length and all that to fit the NBA. Because I feel like those guys always end up having like good careers off the bench and being like six six men for good teams. I feel like those are the kinds of players you can find. Like I've, a couple of Virginia guys too. I can treat like Kyle Guy ends up going too. I feel like he's gonna be a guy who could have a very good career. Him and Ty Jerome. Yeah, both those Virginia guys. You know, it was more than just DeAndre Hunter. You know, obviously to win a national championship. Ty Jerome looked like the best player uh, on Virginia for a lot of those games. And then Kyle Guy, you know, just, just super clutch and, uh, you know, never seemed too rattled. And, yeah, it's like you got the skills. They're productive in college. Uh, let's see what they can do in the NBA. You get the, the right coaching staff around them. They can maybe sit and develop for a year or two uh, before they really start playing more and more minutes per game. But, yeah, those are the guys that I'm going to be banking on, you know, the – the Kyle guys, Ty Jones, Carson Edwards, Grant Williams of the world. So uh, we'll see where they land, but um, they got a lot of uh, a lot of good things in their background that suggest that suggests they're going to be uh, you know quality you know at least role players here for uh, for a few years in the league. All right, there you have it. That was Patrick Schmidt on the NBA draft. Patrick, before I let you go, do all everybody know how to find on social media some of the stuff we're up to? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Patrick A. Schmidt. Uh, just yeah, type in that last name there, and I should pop up there. Uh, yeah, got a great stuff, you know, with the uh, the NBA draft, uh, merging our college basketball coverage and uh, all our NBA coverage. So, well, plenty of NBA draft content coming out, you know, all week long, and and especially during the draft, and when it's all said and done, we'll see how these players fit in with their new clubs, and um, you know, we'll start taking a look at the 2020 draft of which recruits. Uh, which incoming recruits we're going to have a piece on fan side coming out uh, Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. Uh, so right before the draft about uh, the next wave of lottery recruits. So the players that you'll be wanting to watch in college basketball next season uh, to see where they'll eventually head up uh, in the NBA. So some fun stuff coming up here uh, as we uh, really embrace uh, the summer months here, summer off season. All right. Definitely going to check it out. Patrick, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me back on. Not a problem. That was Patrick Schmidt on the NBA draft. Up next, we're going to talk a little hockey Stanley Cup Finals recap with Pete Considori right after this. Back in and being wedged to the corner with Perron, but he walks right out with it. Perron yeah. it across, they score! Again, the Blues have made it 4-0, and it is Sanford, the New England 
for St. Louis. Watch this play by David Perron. Quick little stick handle, forehand, backhand, and Sanford, all he's got to do is throw those hands to the back of the net. No chance for Tuka Rask. All right, we are back on the Just and the Suffering podcast. That call you has heard from NBC Sports' Doc Emmerich after the St. Louis Blues win the Stanley Cup for the first time in franchise history, one of the biggest underdog stories in sports history. Joining me to talk about is our hockey guy, Pete Considori, back on the line. Pete, welcome. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Listen, the St. Louis Blues finally win the Stanley Cup. What a story, just like you said. Underdogs, they were in dead last or tied for dead last uh, at the halfway mark, at the the January first uh, mark, or the excuse me, the um, All Star break too. They, listen, they have been phenomenal. We heard the call, David Perron. Remember, he was on the Golden Knights. He was not protected. He was taken by the Golden Knights. He re-signs the Blues this year. What a, what a story, Mike. What a story. Yeah, so much fun. So, what was your first reaction? You saw the Blues put it away in the third period there and win the Cup in Game Seven. Mike, uh, the first reaction and I hope you can appreciate this, I scream the top of my lungs, play Gloria, Mike. Play Gloria. I love that. I was... I was jumping up and down. I was playing Gloria in like the house. I was at my friend's house. I was singing along. What a great song. What yeah. a fantastic song to play. Listen, I think the Blues deserve this. Jordan Bennington is amazing. He kept the Blues in that game seven. I don't care what you say. The Blues were getting attacked nonstop by the Bruins, and I think that's why the Blues had success against Tuka Rask because Tuka Rask didn't see the rubber that much. They weren't shooting a lot. The shots were very uneven in the beginning of the first period. Um, Alex Petrangelo had a great deke to get around Tukaras to get a goal as well. Don't get me wrong, the scoring was there for the Blues. But if it wasn't for Jordan Bennington getting away, getting the Boston Bruins away from the net and, and keeping that puck out of the net, I think Boston would have had this series no problem. Uh, like I said, Tukaras didn't see much either. I feel like he didn't really get that many touches, and that also kind of played into the demise of the Boston Bruins. Yeah, for sure. Jordan Bennington was a star. I mean, he still had his head in Game 7. He had a couple of incredible saves in there. So it's also hard to believe because this dude was a fourth-string minor leaguer back in January. He ends up making all the big plays for them. Do you think that hey, he's— you know what's funny? Yeah. You know what's funny? Sorry to interrupt you. He didn't even have a spot on the roster at one point. He was loaned out to Providence, the Bruins AHL affiliate, which is kind of ironic since they play, he played against some of the people he played with in the AHL. He was loaned out to Providence. Then when they brought him in— he finally got a shot. So I, I, what a what a phenomenal story. I just I hope he doesn't hit that sophomore slump. Yes, I was about to ask about you that actually ask you about that actually. Do you think that like this is a flash in the pan for Jordan Bennington? Do you think that he is the real deal? You, you know, I see him almost like a Carey Price. His calmness. Um, you know, they made a joke about it at the Stanley Cup parade um, where Jordan Bennington did say some expletives, but he was like, hey, do you want to see some emotion? He screamed because he's just so calm and so collected. I think that coolness is going to help him in his career. Look how good Carey Price is. Um, I don't think he's a flash in the pan. However, I do think that he's going to pull what Cam Talbot pulled a little bit, where he hasn't played 
that full season plus playoffs. Let's say this team stays structurally the same next year and they make it to the playoffs. Like Andre Vasilevsky, like Cam Talbot, if he's playing all these minutes and they don't trust in their backups, he may wear him out before the playoffs start. So I'm curious to see what happens when he starts uh, playing big league minutes. Now, yes, he played the second half of the season full, didn't really have many off days, didn't have any off days in the in the in the. Uh, I don't know if he had any off days in the Stanley Cup uh, playoffs, except for when he was pulled. He got the 16 wins there. So I'm curious to see when the volume of games goes up, how he adapts to that. Yeah, that's for sure. And obviously, as a Kaiser fan, I know the cost might award goes to the whole playoffs. And I know Ryan O'Reilly had a great finals, and he believe he scored the first goal for them in the last four games of the series. But do you think that they made the right choice giving it to him over Bennington? You know, that one's tough. I think Bennington was a great overall MVP story of the season. Um, the playoffs, though, I think they gave it to the right guy in O'Reilly. I mean, the scoring he had was incredible. Um, he was in Buffalo. You know, he did well for them, and that's what attracted his value so much in the, in St. Louis. Um, so I do think they picked the right person, but I do think that joining Bennington as a whole over the whole season is the MVP of the season, not so much the playoffs. Yes. Game seven, he was the MVP of that game. First star of the game, no problem, hands down. Uh, but, you know, I think Ryan O'Reilly deserved that con Smythe. Um, you know, don't forget, a few years back, he crashed his parents' car into a Tim Hortons. Uh, he wasn't doing well with his life. Um, I don't want to say a few years. I don't want to give the wrong impression. It might have been more than that. But, you know, he, he really turned himself around, and, and I, think, I think he did a great job. So congrats to Ryan O'Reilly. Congrats to Jordan Benton on a humongous rookie year. Um, and to the St. Louis Blues organization for winning the Stanley Cup. Yeah, for sure. They had a great year, and again, emphasizes a point. On January 3rd, this team was 31 out of 31 in the National Hockey League, and their champion six dead months. Last. Dead last. How big, in terms of unlikeness, how high is this rank in NHL history in terms of like the most, like, worst the first kind of turnarounds? This, this, is, this is huge. I mean, there was a guy, um, you know, not to bring betting into this, but there was a guy who placed a $400 bet, I believe, when they were starting to win a little bit more um, after that January 3rd mark. Um, he put like a $400 bet that if they won the Stanley Cup, they'd win, he'd win 100, 100 grand. So those, those were the odds there. I don't, I don't know the math off the top of my head. But he won that $100,000 on a $400 bet. That's huge. So if the odds for betting was that low – back then or that high, you know, whatever, then obviously you could see how big of a comeback this is. This is also a rematch of when Bobby Orr and the Bruins swept the St. Louis Blues um, back in the 70s, I was, I believe it was. I, I'm sorry if I got the decade wrong. But this is their first Stanley Cup win ever. Now, last year we had that with the Washington Capitals, but the Washington Capitals have been a good team for a long time. I feel like this was huge for the city of St. Louis and huge for that organization and the NHL. Now, let's be honest. Did the NHL like the St. Louis Blues getting in because of TV ratings? Maybe not because, you know, you want those big matchups. You want the Pittsburgh Penguins versus the LA Kings. You know, stuff that people that, people that know the teams, you know, you're not necessarily going to get the ratings with St. Louis. But this was a huge, huge win. Let's not downplay it. Let's not give them the credit. Let's give them the credit they deserve. Excuse me. They won the Stanley Cup. Who cares about the ratings? I watched every game. It was a great series, seven games. What more can you ask for? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for those who don't follow the hockey, don't realize how crazy it is. I'll give you a baseball example. Like, think back to the 1973 Mets, who were basically in the same place the Blues were, basically last in the National League in 
the middle of the season. They come back, win the East, gets the World Series, take the A's to Game 7, end up losing that. But the Blues actually finished the it, job here. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Think about the morale in that locker room at the at January 3rd, being dead last. Think of the morale of, of guys like Bozak, Petrangelo, O'Reilly. Petrangelo and, and, and the Craig Berube. By the way, Craig Berube is still considered the interim head coach, which they better lock that guy up. But anyway, um, you know they better lock him up for years as the coach because he he is phenomenal, uh, interim head coach or not. He he did a great job with this group. But Craig Berube and Petrangelo and, and the leadership group there had to say, "Hey, look, we're in dead last. What do we got to lose? Let's show these guys that we're great players." And they did exactly that. Yeah, absolutely. And before we move on, do you do you know the story of how Clay Glory became the Blues anthem? You want me to uh, get into that? No, get into that, please. I was actually saw read this in Sports Illustrated last week. Apparently, like. The Blues, when they were down in last, they were in Philly for a road trip, and they were out. A bunch of them were out at a bar, and Play Gloria played in the background. They went on, they won the game, I think, like pretty big, and then they decided to go to the arena match. They said, you know, we need to play this song when we win games. So that's yeah. exactly what happened. Yeah, I've heard that before. I didn't know all the details, so I don't want to go into that, but I heard it was at a bar. I just couldn't remember where it was. But yeah, how crazy is that? You know, it's also superstition and just kind of like tradition now. I mean, even at the St. Louis Blues games, they play Country Roads, and the entire stadium starts singing, you know, Country Road, like the whole thing. It's it's amazing. So it, it, it's great for the fans. It's great for the players. You know, when you hear that song, it's kind of their win song. So, um, you know, like I, like I keep keep saying, what a what a series. Um, yeah, some controversial calls, too. I know, I know Noel Chari got tripped up by, I think it was Bozak, which wound up, getting a game tie or game winning goal for the blues that changed kind of the direction of that series. But you're going to get that in all sports calls, non-calls and stuff like that. Um, you know, not to be rude to the Boston Bruins fan base or, or the Boston Bruins organization with the, with a player like Brad Marchand on their team, they shouldn't be complaining about a non-call on a trip because Brad Marchand is, is probably one of the dirtiest players. One of the best players in the league too, which, which makes me wonder why are you playing like that? But, one of the dirtiest players, in my opinion, to play the game in this generation. Um, and, you know, nothing against the fans, nothing against the team. It was a non-call. It happens in sports. If the same thing happened to the, the, the St. Louis Blues, Boston Bruins fans and everyone else would be saying the same thing. And I'm taking this from a non-biased opinion. I know I'm a Ranger fan, and I know, like I said, I think that, that he's one of the dirtiest players. But um, if the Boston Bruins got away with a non-call, then I would say, yeah, it's par sports. It happens. Yeah, it does happen. Let's move on a little bit to some of the other storylines. We'll, we'll do one national hit that just came today that the one of the top defense, defensemen on the market is be no longer on it. Uh, Eric Carlson gets a huge contract with the San Jose Sharks to stay there. Eight-year term, $11 million a year to me. That's a ton of money for a defenseman. It, you know, it all started when Drew Doughty got paid. And I think the difference between Drew Doughty and Eric Carlson is that Eric Carlson keeps getting hurt. And I don't know if I like this contract. Now, I understand that Carlson wanted, you know, safety. He wanted to know I'm going to be locked up somewhere for a long-term deal. So I, I have my, my assets in order, and I, I know I'm going to be getting paid for the next eight, eight years of my life. Well, let's talk about Connor McDavid. Connor McDavid got, I think it was eight-year, $12 million a year. So you're telling me that Eric Carlson is almost is only a million dollars away from McDavid? I I don't think so. He's a great defenseman, but I don't think he's a million dollars away from McDavid. I think he's a, f- a few million dollars away from McDavid lower because I think McDavid's on another level. Um, and I really don't like the eight-year. And the reason why is because I said before, he's injury-prone. 
Every year, the guy has an injury. I love the guy. I think he's a great defenseman. But I'm going to be honest, I didn't want him on the Rangers. I didn't want them paying this big money to lock him down to get him because I knew he was going to be hurt at least four or five of the eight years that he's playing. What I worry about for the San Jose organization is that what if he gets hurt bad one day and he's done and he can't play anymore and he has to retire? Something like a Zetterberg where he had back problems. So obviously you don't wish it upon anyone. I want Eric Carlson to do well. I want the San Jose Sharks to do well as a hockey fan as well. But I think the San Jose Sharks were in a position to say, we can, we can pay you so we will to make sure you don't go anywhere. And I think that made this outrageous contract. Now Eric Carlson is getting $11 million. Mitch Marner... Mitch Marner's contract and, and, and Mitch Marner that, that may go to an offer sheet, which, which God knows that's going to happen. Mitch Marner's going to look and say, hey, if Eric Carlson's getting $11 million, I deserve at least $11 million because I, uh, you know, I, I think he's better than Eric Carlson. And he doesn't get hurt, you know, knock on wood. So this, this puts a lot of contracts up in the air for a lot of good players. Again, I think the San Jose Sharks did it to lock him in, but I don't like the year and I don't like the amount. Yeah, Carlson was definitely like somebody the Rangers were expected to target, and we already know they're probably going to make a run at Panarin. So who are some other guys you think they're going to try and make a run at? You know, it's hard for the Rangers. I don't know if they're going to be making a run for many people other than Panarin. Um, I think Jacob Truba is on their radar as well from Winnipeg, but I think there's also some rival teams, the Rangers, going after Truba as well. That's going to be a bidding war, a trade war, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think the GMs, and I think Jeff Gordon and and – and um, and the president, they they, I personally think they're looking to rebuild, and I don't think they're trying to go out and get big big pieces that are too old. I think Panarin would be a good fit. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder will they even try to go for Zuccarello again? Because as much as I love Zuccarello, and he's a great player, and he was the heart of the organization in my opinion um, for a very long time, he is getting up the, up there in age, and you may only have him for another four, maybe five years. Uh, so. I, I think they're worried more about what can we do in the sense of prospects. Let's see who we get number two. I, I don't think they're going after Eric Carlson, even though it was, it was rumored. I don't think they're going after, you know, older players that could, you know, Phil Kessel. I don't think they're doing that. Um, it looks like Phil Kessel is going to stay in Pittsburgh per reports. I don't know if he signed anything or not yet, but the rumors are he will stay in Pittsburgh. But the one other guy other than Panarin, like I said, I think is Jacob Truba from Winnipeg. Yeah, it's I also heard that they may, may, might make a run like Braden Point because because the Tampa's cap situation is a mess and they might be able to try to go for an offer sheet. Yeah, honestly, Braden Point would be a great addition. He's young, he's good. Um, you know, we don't know how he's going to be on, in a Rangers uniform. We don't know how he's going to do under David Quinn. He was great under John Cooper. He might still be great under John Cooper if they don't if they find a way to sign him if he takes a discount or whatever. So, um, you know, Braden Point's Braden Point's a great option. Yeah, that would be definitely a good option. A lot of this obviously going to depend on how they do in the draft. And this obviously also depends on the right. Devils because the Devils are sitting there at one. So do you have a sense which way you think the Devils are leaning between uh, Capo, Caco, and uh, Jack Hughes? So I, it's funny you ask this because I tweeted this out and Martino had something to say, which I agreed with, though, along with another Twitter handle, and, and, I, and I can't remember his Twitter handle, and I apologize because I want to give him credit. Um, I put out and I said, I put out on a tweet. I said, look, the way Capo Caco is doing in these worlds and the way Jack Hughes has been silent, does this change the perception of who goes number one? Now, I also compared it to the Heeshear Nolan Patrick thing. Now, the problem with that was, and I realize it now, is that Patrick was an injury issue. It was not a production issue, but everyone was dead set 
that Nolan Patrick was going to be number one no matter what, even injury-prone, he was good. But they flipped. The Devils take Heashier, which I think was a smart move by the Devils, and Nolan Patrick goes to the Philadelphia Flyers. What also concerns me is that Jack Hughes opted out of the NHL Combine. Now, I understand that you are very good and you don't need to prove yourself. Maybe he felt like this was something that he didn't need to do. But now people cannot see your strength when it comes to weights, when it comes to balance, the jump, all that kind of stuff. You have literally cut off more than you should have. Go to the combine. Even if you struggle, people see how you play. I think Casey Middlestaff from the Buffalo Sabres couldn't do one pull-up, but he's still a, he's a phenomenal player. So I don't think it matters at that point. You also work on them. If they are dead set on Jack Hughes, why isn't Jack Hughes saying, yeah, I'm going to go to the combine? That makes me feel like he's trying to hide something. Maybe he can't bench what he's supposed to. Maybe he can't pull up what he's supposed to, and he's scared that's, gonna, that's going to alter his draft position. But now the Devils are in a situation where they go, Capo Caco did phenomenal in the World Juniors, which is pretty much NHL, uh, not World Juniors, excuse me, the IHF Worlds, which has NHL players in it, which is showing that he can perform with the NHL crowd. It may not be full NHL teams, but he can perform in that kind of level. Jack Hughes doesn't go to the combine. He doesn't perform as well. I'm thinking Jack Hughes has a very, very high likeliness to drop down to the Rangers. Are the Rangers going to take him? Yeah, it's Jack Hughes. But I can see this being a switch like he's here and Patrick. Patrick had the injury issues. Hughes has an issue where he doesn't want to go to the combine, and he didn't perform in the world. So it's very interesting. I feel like we're not going to know until that draft night. Yeah, that's a, that's a to-be-continued on that one for sure. And last. Yeah. Last one real quick on the Islanders. They've made one move this week. They gave Jordan Everly, who's been okay, not very productive, but still has potential, five-year deal worth $5.5 million a year. To me, I don't know about if you agree with this, this feels like an overpay to me because they still have to re-sign Robin Leonard. They still have to re-sign Andrews Lee. I feel like that's a lot of money that they just gave him. Yeah, I think the Robin Leonard contract is not going to be as high as people are expecting. Um, you know, I like Robin Leonard, but I do don't think he's going to get the money he deserves right off the bat. I think he's going to get maybe a bridge deal to see if he's going to be doing well, maybe a two, three-year deal, maybe even short as a one- or two-year extension. Because, um, you know, Robin Lair's agent is going to say, too, like, hey, he's been phenomenal. He deserves big bucks. But he's, he's not going to get, you know, carry price money. Uh, he's, he's, he's going to get, he's going to get, I think, some sort of bridge deal. Anders Lee, they may try to play into the, hey, take a discount because you're the captain, whatever. He deserves to get paid. He needs to get paid. I think they're going to, like I said, I don't want to say low-ball Leonard, but I don't think they're going to give Leonard this huge, huge thing. They very well, well might, but I don't think it's in the cards. Um, I don't like the term. I don't mind the money. I don't like the term. So you want to give him $5 million. He came from the Oilers. He's been a good piece. It's not like he's a, he's a liability. He's not performing as much as he should, but he's not that much of a liability on the ice. I don't like the five-year. If you want to give him three-year $5 million, fine. We've seen these these players that get these long-term deals, which five years is not long, long-term. Obviously, you've seen eight-year deals like we just saw with Eric Carlson. The term is what bothers me because what happens if after one year the guy is just shot? That's it. He is, he's not doing well. You try to trade away a four-year contract, you're either going to have to retain part of that contract for the team to take him or he's not going to be moved at all. He'll be placed on waivers or he'll be sent down and you're still paying his contract. So. You know, I think the term was a little too long, but I'm uh, look five million dollars for a guy who does do decent work on the ice. I don't, I don't, I don't mind the the payment. I just mind the term. 
All right, there you have it. That's the Peacock story on the hockey locals and the Blues winning the Cup. So, Pete, before I let you go, I want everybody to know how to follow you on social media. Yeah, uh, at, on Twitter, at PJContadori29. That's C-O-N-S-A-D-O-R-I. Uh, a lot of Rangers retweets there. I also do some polls just to see what you guys think, like the Capo Caco stuff. Um, I really need to get in my Twitter game a little bit better, so please follow me. Give me a follow, and uh, you know I'll, I'll spread some good content out there for you. All right, Pete, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, that was Pete Consadori on the hockey. Up next, this week's two-minute drill. The New York Mets season is done. We're going to have the funeral right after this. And Bader rockets one down the line for a base hit. Wong around second, heading for third. Gomez plays the carom. Wong's going to be waved home. And Rosario can't come up with a relay, and the game is tied. And now they get Bader going back into second base for the third out. But the tying run scores on the double for Harrison Bader. All right, we are back with this week's two-minute drill. The funeral of the 2019 New York Mets. And you just heard the moment where this season basically came to an end. It was last Thursday night. And they posted the St. Louis Cardinals. They had coming off an off day where they split a doubleheader with the Yankees in the Bronx, where Jason Vargas, of all people, pitched the better game and beat the Yankees. Think about that for a second. They go into this game. There's rain coming. Uh, Jacob DeGrom pitches well. The Mets build a 4-2 lead through eight innings. Edwin Diaz comes off in the ninth, and the heavens open up. Literally, it's just downpouring, and the umpires are bringing the tarp out of the field. All of a sudden, the Mets start protesting this. Pete Alonso is out there vertically arguing with the umpire, saying, let us play, let us finish this game. Mickey Cowan in the dugout saying, come on, let us finish this game. So the umpires give in. They they roll the tarp back up. They go out playing a downpour. Lo and behold, Edwin Diaz blows the save. Cardinals tie the game. He gets suspended. And then the next day, Diaz comes out in the 10th and loses this baseball game for them. He gets out a run immediately. Mets lose there. This sets the stage for what became a complete disaster of a weekend. After they lose this Venda game, the Mets had to play another game on Friday night. They built the lead there, 5-4 in the 8th inning. Jerry Samili comes in, gives up four runs. Can't make it up. Mets lose that game. Saturday night, they win. That's great. They win the game. But guess what? Noah Syndergaard hurt his hamstring. And he's out for probably at least a month and a half. That's fantastic. And then Sunday, again, built the lead. Bullpen blows it. Paul DeYoung kills the Mets again. Game-winning homer in the eighth inning off of the immortal Chris Flexen. The Mets had a chance to win all four of those games. They won one. And let's make one thing clear. This all goes back to Thursday. Edwin Diaz has been just like every other closer this franchise has brought in over the last 20 years. He's been very good at times, but in these big moments, he has just melted down, and that is not good enough considering the price you paid to get him. Edwin Diaz needed to slam the door there. Instead, he did what Armando Benitez does. He did what Brain Looper did. He did what Billy Wagner did. He did what Frankie Rodriguez did. 
He did what Jerry Samilia did. He melted down a big spot. That's not good enough for a New York closer. But this whole thing starts on Thursday with this decision by the Mets to try and argue with the umpires to get them to extend this game in the rain. Here's my problem with this. Number one, the umpires. You were watching the weather. You know there's more rain coming. You look pathetic that you let a baseball team talk you into playing this game because it lightened up for a few moments there. That's embarrassing. The feel was shiny from all the wards are gone. It absolutely affected the Mets' chance to compete in that game. Once the Cardinals got a man on, and this is going back to Diaz, Neil will do the job there. Diaz walks a guy. They get a run in. They sent another runner home when they got a double down the left field line because, you know what? They said, they're fielding wet baseball. Let's make Ahmed Rosario field this cleanly, throw the plate with a wet baseball, make a perfect throw, and nail the runner. Couldn't do it. Tie game. Next day, they win. And this is also a very risky situation for the umps because of the injuries. Because playing on a field like that is dangerous because it's muddy. People can slip. Harrison Bader wiped out on that double that he had to tie the game. That's the reason this game was not over at that point because he wiped out, got tagged out second base going back. If he blows out his Achilles there or blows out a knee, that's not good. The Mets had something like this happen last year. We were playing a game in Vegas, the Toronto Blue Jays. They're only visiting the town. Juan McGarris tears his toe ligament playing on a sloppy field in the ninth inning. That's bad. That's embarrassing from baseball. And that's a whole problem we have another day about the fact that there's too many games in here and too many teams coming in once a year and umpires feeling compelled to let these games finish. That's problem number one with this situation. Problem number two. What are the Mets doing arguing to finish this game? Do you not realize that if the game gets wiped out to rain, you win? They played eight complete innings. It would have been tough on the Cardinals, but if the game gets wiped, the Mets win. They have enough for an official game. Instead, they say, you know, no, no, we have to compete. We have to finish this ball game. And what happens? They finished it and they lost. That's fantastic. That's absolutely great. And that set the stage for the disaster for a weekend. And this team is done. They have no rotation depth. Noah Sanuar getting hurt was probably the worst thing that could happen to this team because who is taking that spot in rotation? Who is it? Corey Oswalt Stinks is on the Miley injured list. The immoral Chris Flexen, who just call up, got called up and gave up the game-winning homer yesterday, they want him in the bullpen now because they realize he stinks as a starter. It's going to be Anthony K. Anthony K. maybe. He just got the AAA two weeks ago. He has no experience there yet. You're talking about either Urban Santana, who they signed a minor league deal, has not been very good down in low-level ball. Walker Lockett, who is a good ERA at Syracuse, but has only struck out nine batters in 25 innings pitched. Or the immortal Wilmer Font, who looked terrible most time he's been here. And the bullpen stinks as well. The Met bullpen circle of trust really just Seth Lugo holding hands with himself. Nobody else in that bullpen getting out. And that's a huge problem. And this goes back to the brilliant JL manager giving Jay Lowry $20 million this offseason. 
for another corner infielder when they have way too many. Jed Lowry has not played a game this season. The Mets ignore their pitching depth to the point that they are basically grabbing whoever they can off waiver wires to get people into the bullpen. That's where Wilmer Fock came from when they gave up an 18-year-old who's 6'6 and can throw 95 miles an hour to the Tampa Bay Rays to get that guy. That's worked out great for them. They got they got a guy named Brooks Pounder and his career ERA of 892 from the Cleveland Indians because they wanted a fresh arm in that bullpen. I have zero faith in this franchise put together because this team, the way it's put together, is a joke. And a lot of this goes to, yes, Mickey's not been a good manager, but the brilliant general manager did not give him a lot to work with. He said, you know what? I'm okay just rotating garbage in the last couple of roll-ten spots and hoping something sticks. They do just enough, the Mets, because I'm sick of him too, of Brody going, you know, they're playing well. They're close to putting it together. I have faith in the players. What team are you watching, Brody? What have you been watching the last two months? Outside of a 5-1 start, this team's been mediocre. They do just enough, just enough to tease you and thinking, you know what? Maybe this is the homestand they turn around. You know, they just go 4-2 and two against the Cardinals and the Yankees. They'll be okay. And they underachieve just a bit. And you're going, okay, they go on the road trip. They go 5-6. and six, They'll be okay. And just hang on until they get home again. I don't buy it. I'm done. This team is what it is. It's not good. They have an 11-game trip coming up. Atlanta for three. Chicago for four. Philly for four more. All good teams. What part of the Mets history here suggests to you this team is not going to just completely fall apart on this trip? I texted my Will Schneiderhan, who was on the podcast with me last week, breaking down the Mets a little bit. We thought they were heading in the right direction, and how stupid of us to think that. This trip has two and nine written all over it. If that happens, the Mets are 35 and 44, and I believe Mickey Calloway's out of a job at that point. Nothing changes with this franchise. One thing sums it up this weekend. On Saturday night, the same night that the Mets bought Brooks Pounder from the Indians for cash to add a minor league arm to their bullpen to give themselves an option. The Yankees go get Edwin Encarnacion, the AL home run leader, to bolster their lineup in a spot they didn't even really need it. The Yankees try to win. The Mets try. Nothing changes. All right, and that will do for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Patrick Schmidt, for stopping by to talk all about the NBA draft and preview that. I also want to thank Pete Constadori for our fun chat about the hockey season, the end of it, the St. Louis Blues winning the cup, a little bit of off-season preview for the three locals. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at some of the Yankees' options to acquire an ace by the trade deadline, check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can go to any of those platforms, search for Just and the Suffering there. You will find that. You can subscribe to all the podcasts, get all the episodes. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings. It'll make this show even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me at the hashtag PlayGloria for our Blues fans out there. Again, hashtag PlayGloria if you made it to the end of this week's show. Next week, we will recap the NBA draft. We will preview Wimbledon because that's coming up and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Boston Bruins fans.